Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to another fine day of podcasting in the world of the internet. Garrick, it's good to see you. Good to see you too. How, how's it? Uh, how's it going, buddy? It's great. The weather's nice in Spain, like it usually is. Uh, and uh, don't want to don't wanna brag, but <laughs> it's pretty good. Um, we're, so yeah, Captain it's nice. Of the obvious. Thank yeah. you for that. <laughs> it's uh, not a great, great week. Weekend's a good thing. I'm appreciative of rest. I'm appreciative of Sabbath, never more so than the last few years. Um, the more, it seems like the older I get, the more, the older our kids get, uh, the more I realize, man, I should have been taking Sabbath all those years uh, before, before I had kids, but yeah. and, and the goodness of God and giving us rest and, and, and recognizing our limitations is, is a, it's a good, is a good thing. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you have any big plans for movies this weekend? You, I always feel like I'm going to get to movie recommendations now as opposed to later. Well, you know, you got to watch the Mandalorian, the next episode of the Mandalorian. Uh, Did that release already? Cause I, I, yeah, I've watched what, I think the first it's season. two. It comes out on a Friday. So I think they're, they're past, this is four. four. So oh. that's kind of what we'll be watching. My wife has purpose again. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Something, something to do. I don't know. Movies. I don't know. I need to, there's a few movies I need to finish. Uh, Cause they're just, they were long movies. I still need yeah. to finish a hidden life. And I need to finish a movie called Solaris, which is a Russian movie, but they're both very long, slow movies. So. Where's Solaris? I've, I've heard yeah, of Steven that, Soderbergh remade it. Steven Soderbergh remade oh, it with George Clooney. But the original right. one is a guy, a director, Andre, oh, I can't remember his name, Tchaikovsky. Yeah. It's probably not. To really get a, the nuance, you have to watch it in the original Russian, I'm sure. Yeah, it's kind of like it was like kind of a groundbreaking movie, but he's, he was also like kind of an Orthodox Christian guy. So there's a lot of spirituality and kind of Christian imagery. Got kind of got kicked out of Russia because of that. Um, some of, some of his oh, cool. films were pushing the boundaries for the communists. Where do you? Okay, so just a random question, but where do mm-hmm. you? Where do you find these films? I always feel like you're you're know. like the guy who brings that really rare bottle of wine that nobody was <laughs> expecting, but you always have one in your back pocket. You know, it's, like you know, do you, where do you find this stuff? It's a little, one of my um, strengths in the Strengths Finder thing is yeah. like collecting ideas and stuff so oh. i think just have this ability to find stuff i don't usually remember exactly but wikipedia is a very dangerous thing for me because it's like <laughs> got those links and you can see so like so, you can be like two hours and like oh i'm learning about basket weaving in the, the you know the tribes of the mountains of segovia what i have which, no, why am i doing that there's no which reason to do that everyone needs to know something yeah. about well but, at least but, you're entertaining at a cocktail party i, I would i would bet we so we have guests today i would wager that our guests one of them probably has that similar ability or skill or strength, the ability to like find stuff, but, but we'll ask, we'll find out because if I can make a segue. Yeah, yeah please, please do. <laughs> the, the conversation up until this point was really lacking. <laughs> I, I thought it was quite, was uh, I mean, we could have stayed there all day, but let's give the people what they want. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause I think we have some very interesting guests today. Uh, we don't always have guests, uh, but when we do, they're they're outstanding. Um, so the, these are my friends, uh, Sean and Deb, who are also, they also work and live in Granada, uh, the church planting uh, among university students and young people, and also heading up um, uh, basically Assemblies of God in Europe, uh, Secular People's Initiative. Did I say that right? And um, good friends of ours, people who we've been wanting to have on the, on the podcast for a while, uh, so excited to have them on, and just I think we're hoping we can just talk about talk about 
reaching secular people, reaching people in Europe and, and, and what all that, that means. So. Which won't take long because it's just super easy to reach people. It's in super, so. super easy, barely an inconvenience. Um, so, so, so Sean, so, so that, that is, let's start with the fun question there. Do you, do one of you guys feel like you have that kind of gift to like, you can, you just find, you just find information and stuff easily and you don't know where it came from and you maybe, I think we have really different interests. And so the, the kind of things that Sean collects or knows might be really different than what I do, you know? So that's, that's kind of fun. I, mean, I think Sean's a lot better at remembering the title or the author of, you know, a book or a detail. And, you know, I'm more likely to say, I remember this plot and I'll tell you the whole plot, but I can't remember the title or the author. So basically she understands everything, the content. And I just remember people's names. Was, there was a truck on the, there was a truck on the cover. I'm sure of it. I don't remember what we talked about. But... <laughs> to, together, you can complete your yeah, exactly. ensemble. Exactly. That's great. Of course, yeah. 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 But alone, we're only half a brain. <laughs> That's great. Well, so how long have you guys been in in ministry in Europe? We've been in Europe since 2008. So I guess that would make it okay. 12 years, unless you count 2020 as like five years. Right. <laughs> right. So, yeah. So we've been we've been in Europe for about twelve years. But my wife grew up. Yes, I grew up in Belgium. So uh, from the age of five to fifteen, so kind of saw a, wow. a child's view. My parents were pastors of an international church in Brussels, and um, yeah. So then we came back as adults after doing student ministry in Washington D.C. for about ten years. Okay. They, 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 you guys were on staff with Chi Alpha at a, just a little school called, um, little school called yeah, Georgetown. Yeah, Georgetown. Oh, yeah, I've heard of that little, little <laughs> cool. small liberal arts college of no importance. Exactly. Yeah. That's so, great. in some sense, that was probably a, was that a good preparation for you guys in, in coming to Europe? Was there some things there that you were able to take away? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, a Bible Belt um, church kid. That's how I grew up, and. Um, you know, in a good sense of that, I mean, good experience. Um, and, uh, you know, went off to one of our denominational schools to get trained for ministry and all that kind of thing. So when I got to, when we got there, you know, our first kind of major stop in ministry, it just was a different world because you couldn't do any of the gathering, you know, find 12 evangelicals and start a group and fire them up. And, you know, all of a sudden you're 60 and 80 and whatever. It just wasn't like that. Um, and so that really is where we kind of had to face reality about, and there's a whole segment of, of American society, let alone the globe that, um, man, they're really not just, uh, you know, they're not just bad Christians. <laughs> they just come from a whole different yeah. reality, different yeah. way of viewing the world. And that's where it kind of began for us, the journey. So what, what brought you then back to Europe? I mean, Deb, you were, you were, you grew up in, in Belgium, yeah. Yeah. but what, what kind of sparked the interest for Europe? I think probably those years, well, we always wanted to go overseas and, and be in ministry, but I think those years in Washington, DC, the students, a lot of them at Georgetown were international students. And I think we just kind of had an increasing awareness of need and, and felt like we really wanna go where, where the need is the greatest. And because we were introduced there to the secular worldview, that was really on our hearts. And it felt like Europe was definitely the place and our own organization 
when we did some research, um, student ministry was far more developed in Northern Europe than in Southern Europe. And in fact, when I was a kid in Belgium, you know, I knew the campus pastors at some of the universities. And so I felt like, I think we felt like increasingly really just let's go where, you know, where the need is the greatest. And that seemed to be Southern Europe. And so, um, yeah, our, our organization felt the same. And um, so Spain seemed logical. So, so in, in all of that, then what, uh, having, as, as you said, um, Sean, having, you had exposure to kind of the secular worldview. Um, but once you arrive, you guys have done a lot of work. I've, I've read a little bit about it, um, that stuff that Garrick has sent me and, um, really actually, it's interesting because it, it really coincides with a lot of, uh, you sum up well, I think some of the, some of the thinking and what I would say, if I were to try to describe things, um, I think you sum it up very well. It's kind of like, I don't know if you've ever had that experience where someone, someone says something and go, yes, yes. That's what I've been trying to put my finger on for a long time. So you guys have done a really great job of that, but how would, before we, we get to kind of your definition of that, you, you had exposure to kind of a secular worldview, but when you got to Spain, was it what you expected? Did it take you a while to begin putting your finger on it? Like kind of take me into some of the journey of all of that. Yeah, to kind of give a little little context, both of us, you know, our training was really missiological training. That's kind of where we always had that in mind. So even when we were in the States, we kind of looking through that lens of, 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 of missiologically thinking about what are people's deep down beliefs, their worldview, and not just labels they put on themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's obviously an important lesson in a secular context that people label themselves all sorts of things. They check certain boxes, but what they talk about and how they live and how they really feel about the world is different. So when we came to Spain, I think we were prepared to look beyond surface stuff like, you know, I'm from this state church or I'm this or I'm that. And even people saying atheist, you know, like we just never assumed that they actually were, even though they said that. And then you find out later, oh, yeah, I believe there's God. I'm just an atheist, you know. So yeah. <laughs> I, think, I don't think we were totally surprised by all of that. But I think what struck me the most was just you went from, you know, experiencing a little bit of that in a Christianized country like the United States to everybody thinks the same way. You know, like you can talk about surface differences, but like and they don't know anybody who thinks differently. Mm-hmm. And so it was just like, you know, if you're it's dropping into the middle of Saudi Arabia, you know, you're going to you're going to meet Muslims and they're all going to think the same way. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that was the difference was that, that to me, that was what's so chocante, as we say here, so shocking that um, it's just there wasn't diversity. Mm-hmm. Uh, there weren't options. Um, there weren't another way of seeing the world. And that was the biggest difference for me. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I would I would agree. I, I think. It took us a while to to get our feet on the ground in terms of um, how do we go about making relationships and um, when there's a lot of kind of I, I don't know suspicion seems like too strong of a word but you know when you when you do meet people from a very different worldview there's like there's just a lot of layers there and I think working in the states even though we've been working with a pretty secular population in Washington, D.C., there's still a lot of givens. There's still a lot of shared culture. There's still 
I mean, Sean and I came to Spain in our mid thirties and we didn't even know Spanish. I mean, we really were starting from zero. So I think for us, there's just all of these layers of, you know, more of a homogenous population here, you know, the, the stronger secularism with the state church kind of flair. Um, but then also just the loss of shared points of reference. And so we had to think through, you know, if we're going to work with students, how do we make connections? Like where are shared points of humanity in this mm -hmm. really different situation? You know, so that's yeah. kind of, I think, at, you know, we really had to um, take some time to think about that, you know, where, where do we share enough with people that we can all get on the same page and have start to have this conversation? Mm. So, so sorry, Garrick. I'm. I, can, I think oh, I keep go, jumping go on it. you, but no, no, no. So, it's it's discombobulating, isn't it? When when you first land somewhere. So this is my. I, I obviously live in Sweden, but um, this being my third kind of foray into our third, I guess, tour of duty. I don't know what you want to call it. Uh, Central Asia and North Africa. Previous to that, and every time I've landed somewhere new, while it's it's discombobulated. You you make a great point about there's no common frame of reference, um, and you 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 find yourself grasping for um, definitions, so words that you can define things by, but then you find they don't mean the same thing. It's kind of you know <laughs> inconceivable. You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. <laughs> I feel like it sums up my well my experience of yeah. uh, of overseas missions. Um, so how then would you guys, so you've mentioned secularism. So how would you define secularism as you see it today in Europe? Yeah, well, we try to really stay simple um, because we can go so quickly into like, you know, the roots and enlightenment, post-modernity and all, you know, post-secularism, post, you know, all those kind of things. But I think for us, it's really, we just try to stay simple. And we say it's when the God or God's is no longer at the center. Mm. Um, and part of the reason we, we, that's our kind of standard definition is simply because there's kind of this old myth that secular people are atheists. And, you know, so then you have this big debate that like the secularism theory, people are going to grow less and less and less religious and spiritual, and then it's going to take over. And then uh, kind of religious conservatives say, no, that's not happening. And, and they're right. It's not happening. But it's still missing the point. These people are still secular. In other words, yeah. God is an option, but not an obligation. Mm -hmm. And if he is there, he's someone that's there for as a resource, whether that's God of the Bible or God generic or universe or whatever it is. It, it's just there for your resource. And so we say when God no longer the center, he's not the authority self is. It's, it's all about project self. And But it doesn't mean an absence of real spiritual interest or nor does it mean that God in some sort of form is is gone from the scene it's just he's more at your beck and call than, mm -hmm. and that's really and it's about self-definition and, and and that's really what we talked about in terms of our definition okay so a little bit of, of a grenade here uh, we'll, we'll welcome Garrick to our conversation later um <laughs> so I, my, oh I talk too much uh okay so if that's the case, because I think I think you're dead right. Um, secular people are not irreligious people. They are people who don't have God at the center. Um, but I guess for one, 
I've often noticed in the context that I'm in, but I, I, I see it creeping in all over the place in any kind of secular society, um, that even among religious folk who, even among Christians, um, we, tend, we tend to go through life and we're affected by that secularism as well. So we swim in the same waters and we think we're not getting wet, but the reality is, is we're getting wet. So do you find that a lot of times Christians then approach God, even though they have a much greater devotion to that God, um, but they approach God in the same manner that he's just someone to help them with their personal project? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think, you know, in every culture, um, you're always tempted by whatever idols are in your culture and are, are fashionable at that time, you know, and, and biblically, of course, Israel was tempted by the idols of their neighbors that would have been natural for them. And so I think for Christians, it's the main thing that we fight personally is it's our culture mm. too. And so, you know, the idol of self is probably our biggest temptation. How do we, you know, are we submitting to God's authority or treating him as a resource, you know, are we even reading the Bible through the eyes of individualism and, and all of the elements of secularism, or are we letting it, you know, shape us and change us? And um, yeah, I think it definitely affects us all because it's, it's us, it's our culture. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that we're not believers and that we're not going in the right direction. I just think, you know, it's, we have to be aware that that's, that is what we face. Yeah, I remember when our, our middle child daughter was, uh, I don't know, five or something, we were reading the story of the Exodus. And, you know, she's a very straightforward thinker. And she said, Dad, if, if God said the Israelites could leave Egypt and he's more powerful than Pharaoh, why didn't he just get up and leave? <laughs> like, like, why all this, you know, thing? And, and you realize in that story, of course, that the plagues and all of that, there's God showing his power over the Egyptian gods. And it dawned on me the problem wasn't getting Israel out of Egypt. It was getting Egypt out of Israel. Yeah. And, and I think we're in a moment, those of us working within secularism, that we are being sent among the people to whom we grew up with. And yeah, the United States is very different. We can set that aside for the moment. But in the big picture. And so, yeah, our, our Christianity is it's going to be flavored, uh, misshapen by where we came from, just like any culture, um, you know you're in Africa or somewhere, they might still be going to shamans and going to church. You know what I mean? We have, you know, right. Yeah. Like, we have I, our syncretism even exactly. in the West. And right. so that we do right. have our own syncretism. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's an, that's a important and fascinating uh, perspective because often what we do in the church or even in missions ago, we're going to reach secular people. And the, the, the concept is that secular people are out there somewhere, right? They're different right. Exactly. or, or we say, we use these words kind of, very freely postmodern, secular, post-Christian, but we don't really understand that we're, we're also part of that and part of that, you know, uh, and I, I, I think that's an important thing for us to in, within the church, within as, even as missionaries to be aware uh, that, that there's a much more subtle reality for us. And I think if we're being smart then as ministers, as pastors, and if, if I were, even if we we're in the States, being realistic, realistic about that is when you help your own, your believing community engage in mission too, they're also being discipled. The yeah. stuff that they've stopped saying it publicly that they have this idea of God or they know, you know, or this vision of life that's not biblical. 
And so I think it's so important that we help them understand, we help our own selves understand our secular context for mission. And then as in mission, you know, our own secularism is hopefully we're weaned off it as well. Yeah, it's a hard thing. I mean, because if you're familiar with, there's a, a pastor out of Australia and, and thinker, uh, wicked, brilliant guy, uh, Mark Sayers, who um, also has a podcast called uh, This Cultural Moment. And uh, it's fantastic. Um, he's done some rethinking even of, so he did This Cultural Moment and it kind of took off. And COVID and a bunch of other stuff has actually caused him to rethink some other things that he kind of was seeing. And he he's right about a lot of the messages that secularism and Western culture is telling us and the personal project and everything. But he actually thought about it recently from a pastoral point of view as being, being a pastor in Melbourne, Australia. And he said, you know, I started to realize that I've just become a chaplain to everyone's secular pet project themselves. And right. he said, I'm not calling people into a wow. deeper discipleship with Jesus. And, you yeah. know, I, so he kind of has had this, and I don't think, I think he's being a little tough on himself because I, I followed him. I think he's a great pastor, but, but there is that reality of, there is that temptation for us to go, uh, even as we quote unquote brand the message that we're, th- or design tools or whatever else, we, we tend to frame it in sorts of what's your pain point. Let me help you with your pain point. So, um, we can say things like, are you lonely? Jesus is your friend. Are you this? Like it, it just becomes this right. utilitarian personal project need. Yeah. Uh, so we have to be really careful with that. And, and, and you see that in, in missions, you know, short term missions or sometimes, you know, yeah. one year mission or it's, it's about that, the experience to have, you know, I, I think I mentioned this quote uh, last podcast but it, it's in the movie hidden life the terrence malick movie where the main character who's refusing to to give allegiance to hitler and obviously this is a much more different context than we're in right now but i think there's some, some something similar here where he goes to visit a, a, a man who paints in the in the church he paints jesus and in these catholic churches and and he, he this man is confessing he says we have made admirers of jesus but not followers and we need to we need to paint the true christ not not the one that makes everyone feel good and comfortable. So I thought it was a fascinating line. And, I, and so, so my leading into there, do you, do you feel that that's very similar? Maybe what's happened in the church, but also you know, the wider society of Europe is there's admirers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, we talk a lot about that in the process of moving people forward and we kind of have these markers we talked about, but it's, it's easy, you know, secularism can add a lot in to itself. It's in that sense, it borrows from East, Eastern religions and that that's where it's, yeah, you can add a lot in and, and it doesn't have to be consistent with something else you have in your pocket. You know, like you can hold yeah. contradictory views. That's part of its, its shape because of that. We just talk a lot about it's, it's a mosaicing kind of thing. I can grab a little bit of this, a little bit of that if it's useful to me. And that can even happen within, hey, man, this is a great community. I love belonging to this Christian community because everyone's nice and helpful. But it doesn't necessarily say much about whether or not they're dealing with the allegiance issue to Jesus. You know, yeah, we're still going to be nice and we're going to be faithful in our community and all those things. But, you know, the whole we, we all had that belong before we believe. And I still think that's true. But people can belong and not believe for a long ways. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They're just like, yeah. I just like you guys. And and because they don't, the allegiance issue, and, and that can go for the people, the, the lost people with whom we're working, but, you know, attending a good 
Bible Belt Church on 35, you know, one hour every Sunday morning in the Bible Belt it doesn't cost you very much. And it might make you feel better, but it's not probably going to demand the allegiance of Jesus. And so it's attempting in all locations. Yeah, I, the way we describe that here in Sweden is it's the salad bar approach to, to religion. Okay. I like these pieces. I don't like those pieces. I, it's okay that you like those pieces because it's all here, but I'm going to put together my own salad. You do yours. And at the end of the day, all that really matters is that you have a salad on your plate. Right. Um, and that's kind of oftentimes can be people's approach. You mentioned, you mentioned markers of, of secularism. What, what are some of those markers that y'all have identified? Well, we kind of, there's an older, older book now called I Once Was Lost, yeah. um, uh-huh. you know, and they had their five thresholds and we've kind of adapted those. That's, I can't remember who that was, Don Everett's and whatever. Yeah. InterVarsity guys, I forget. Yeah. Guys, yeah. Great book. Yeah. I mean, was, markers of secularism. No, that, but I'm saying that's, those are the markers we're talking about. As we, we kind of adapted their book and talking about as we see people move forward, here's kind of the barriers they've got to cross and deal with. And we're right. talking about what secularism is, you yeah. know, that, that's a different question, but I don't know which one you want to. Uh, well, you, you referenced the markers of how someone comes to faith. And yeah. then in my head, that made me think of the markers of secularism. So let's, let's do the markers of secularism that y'all kind of work with and identify um, just kind of as a, to help people wrap their heads around it. And in large measure, I think, because, so one of the reasons I want to get to that, is just like Garrick said, we tend to think of secularism out there, but it's really something that's we're, we're swimming in as well. Right. Um, we just think of the, the secularist as the other and not maybe even us or, or our neighbor. So, yeah, and well, I, I think, well, I don't want to jump maybe, but I think just to keep in mind, there's something a converse, a, a, it's a term you guys, I don't know if you even coined it, but you guys have said a lot is the, the idea of folk secularism. Right. Which, which has helped me think of a lot of it. So maybe it might be interesting to talk about that too. As, as yeah, we, so as explain we that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, again, it but just comes from- Start where you like. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, we can start there maybe. I think, again, the missiological training really helped because, you know, if you're going to an Islamic world, yeah, you've got the five pillars. You know, you've got these really standard things. But if you're in Indonesia versus West Africa versus, you know, Middle East, it's very different expressions. And you're really more concerned about how do people really live? How do they feel about this thing? How do they feel about the world? How do they behave in the world? And less about doctrinal points, which sometimes secularism, we it's always was approaches like apologetically, like, oh, you reach everybody else by friendship, but you reach secular people by, you know, I don't know, quoting whoever is the coolest apologist at the time. <laughs> and um, so we kind of looked at, say, well, let's look at this folk religion, a lived experience. What's it like for people? And not trying so hard to to uh, make it all match, even like in some systematic thing, because that's a lived experience. So, and the other thing that benefits is it means that folks as secularism means, yeah, we share some things in common, but Sweden's going to be different than Southern Spain. Yep. In its flavor, but not in its, it's a different flavor. It's all ice cream, you know, but it, and right. so that's how we're, we're, we're approaching it. But the things that we find that are shared are several things. And Debbie, you want Well, I mean, I, it might help to talk about, you know, some of the flavors maybe. Yeah. We, cause sure. we talk about like four types of secularists um, that, you know, can kind of get beyond just the, the main idea, which is for all secular people, like we've said, there's no spiritual authority in their lives. So they are the authority that doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, so, so the whole pick and choose thing, you know, those are definitely common elements, but we talk about how, 
um, one of the four categories, for example, are radical secularist. And that's the one that when people first start talking about the secular worldview, that's what they imagine everybody is, a radical secularist, you know, an atheist who really likes to argue about the ideas and maybe is even anti-religion. Um, and, and, you know, we think that's probably the minority, but they're out there. You know, the radical right. secularist is one way to be secular. Um, another is what we call a spiritual secularist, which is, you know, people that are really, really dipping into all kinds of spiritual practices from all kinds of different traditions, you know, everything from meditation to crystals to, you know, even more traditional practices, but it's very much, um, you know, I'm going to make this hodgepodge that works for me spiritually because I am the authority of what is good for my life. Um, and so it's still deeply secular in that sense of where the, the locus of authority is, but it, on, the, on the surface, it looks very spiritual or it is very spiritual. Um, and then you want to share the other two? Yeah, the other two get less press, but we think they're the largest groups, actually, once we get on the ground. And one is simply what we call, we call them religious or traditional secularists. And this kind of is people that have a high degree of identification with my tribe, my ethnicity. And often that means some sort of very strong feeling about the state or preferred religion. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I am Catholic, I am Lutheran, I am, you know, whatever, depending on your on whatever country you're in, but they actually have no real moral or spiritual life. So they never go to church, but it's very strongly held that we are, I'm a Spanish, I am Catholic, and I vote this way, but it has no moral content, no personal relationship with Jesus, um, probably complete ignorance of the Bible, um, and things of that nature. And, and that's a strong version, um, but it's still about me. Do you know, and, do you think that it's possible that Europe has always been majority that? Uh, I, we probably would say yeah, that. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't know how you measure that. It's not easy to yeah, measure though. I, you know? Well, and I well, don't know if we could go back and, right. and figure it out, but right. I, I'm beginning to suspect after 13 years in Europe and and most recently doing a lot of reading functionally, I think Europe, because even, even Kierkegaard in Denmark, that's what he was up against. Right. He was up against a society. And then you, you know, you, you just get a lot of sense that Europe seems to have always been a lot like that. So maybe not majority, but maybe it always was. It's always a huge chunk something, of, it, of course. Yeah. And you know, a lot of social historians, I know here in Spain, for example, in the year 1800, it was like only 15% of men went to mass. You know, so, it, you know, it t- the, the religious um, behaviors kind of ebb and flow, but, right. I, you know, there's a relationship. So, yeah, there's, but this real strong identity thing is, I think, you know, there's a lot of nationalist movements in Europe right now and around the world. And they're, they're kind of digging back into these religious identities. Um, and, and yet it has very little, has nothing really to do with Jesus or his authority in our lives, but it's an identity. But the other group we talk about, which I think we think is really the majority are, we just call them pragmatic secularists. Yeah. Other, and probably they're the most pure secularists, if I can say it that way, because if we can't know anything except their own lens and there's moral relativity and truth is no absolute truths and all those things that we get from the enlightenment and so on, then why bother with anything at all? It's like, I don't care. 
Yep. And so apathy becomes the spiritual warfare. It's not like anger. It's just like none of these questions have any meaning. So we don't even think about them. And when we talk to our students here and, and the friends of our children here, that is the like, what, why, why are we talking about this? Almost like I can't even, I don't have a category to think and talk about it. Yep. Yep. It's, it's, it's so the apathy. And that's why I said the apathy of the, the, the devil's work is the apathetic. This, none of this matters. And so I just, you know, have a little tapas, a little vino, a little cerveza, you know, uh, I, I, I enjoy my thing and I just never comes up and none of us ever talk about this stuff. If I had a, a euro for every time a student says, we've never heard anybody talk about this kind of stuff before. I'm not talking about the gospel. I'm just talking about the big questions of life. Yep. And I think so that's we, the, a huge I mean, are, can you, can you, is there an estimated number? Like in Sweden, I would say that's probably 95% of the people we talk to. Well, we put it up high. We, you know, we tried to, unfortunately, when people study secularism, they almost always just study the non-religious, those who yeah, are committed. It doesn't such help a mistake. Us. But if you look at values survey, the Europe World Value Survey and stuff, and kind of ask mm. like those questions, it varies from culture to culture. And that's kind of where we got these four categories from anyway. Yeah. Like they started coming right. up as you kind of get through the data. But our experience is this is by far the core of, of, of secularism. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Eric, Eric, would you say the same that, I mean, in terms of this, I guess we would say we know the student population the best and, and it seems to us and yeah, young families too. But um, yeah, that's been our, um, what we found. Yeah, that's, I would say that's the vast majority of people are and I think that's that number's grown. I think maybe not too long ago it would have been more traditional secularists, people who would who would who would more have identified still with the church in some way. But I, that that group I think is in in decline. Uh, so I would I would say most people are, are like, especially among the student population. Now I think if you were to go to some villages or you know more in the rural area, right. it might be a little different. But among among right. you know college educated people. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's so, it's, it's so strong, I think, is that when there are people in the student population who are asking those questions, even if they're, even if they're Catholic and somewhat serious about their faith, there's such an outlier, everyone, people like we've done stuff on campus, just got people and go, do you know any Christian students? And, you know, you'll get, the, oh, I, there's one, you know, it's, it's literally like, we, we know this one, you know, so, uh, we're not, we don't do that stuff, but we know this one girl. Uh, you know, yeah. it, so it's, it's such right. an outlier that um, it, it's, right. yeah. And it may be different. I, I do think there are differences across Europe right. in what this looks like and which of these categories is more, more prevalent. And I know, yeah. you know, we've heard from other European students who come to Spain, you know, we have a, a, a Polish friend who's a believing Catholic and, and came to Spain and found us. And she was like shocked because she thought, Spain would be like Poland. Mm -hmm. And she knew a lot of people her age who were, you know, at, at various levels of what we would call maybe whether or not they're devout Jesus followers, I don't know, but at least they were sincere in their beliefs and had no problem saying as a 20 year old, I totally believe in God yeah. and, and go to mass regularly. And so when she came to Spain, she was just shocked, you know, like, mm -hmm. I can't find anyone. I've, I've been on campus for two months and I haven't found anyone, you know? So I, I there must be quite a bit of variation, you know, throughout course, Europe and even throughout Spain for that matter. Right. And Poland, to be yeah. fair, 
doesn't fit the general profile of Europe for those very reasons. It's, right. It is an outlier in all the right, data. Right. Yeah. So in that sense, it's very rare. And, and but as you obviously you got the East, you know, Scandinavia is different. Again, it's that flavor, but this whole kind of, why are we talking about this? And I think an important thing to remember is often when people who will talk to us or who will engage, whether in spiritual interest or kind of anger, they often are outliers of the society anyway. And we kind of have yeah. ideas right. of secularism that are false, it reinforces our idea that apologetics is going to really work for everybody because that right. one guy happens to be a Richard Dawkins follower, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and he's, we'll he's the one dude that's read Richard Dawkins. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, so well, the- and I, I think that's important. We understand that because we got to hit the center if we're going to have long-term impact, you know? So, okay. So okay. then let me, okay. You go ahead, Eric Garrett. Cause I'm, I'm I was going to sure? switch gears a little bit. Oh, I think we're, we're probably got the same question. Cause well, uh, have at it. Have we kind of, we kind of look like twins actually on this Google, on this, on this zoom call anyway, with the, I just need to get my blue sweater on. We, we would be almost <laughs> perfect. Uh, um, no, but the, it's the official <laughs> rabbit trails uniform. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, I think John, obviously you, what you're talking about now leads to this, this bigger question, the conversation you and, uh, Devin and I and ZU, my wife, we have a lot. Uh, it is okay. So what? So now what? So typically, yeah. what what we get in our organization uh, crew is well, just do this more, right? Just just do it more. Or or there's a tendency to to go towards um, we'll just get really involved with the church, the local church, and we'll help the church do more. Um, you know, and I'm not saying those are necessarily bad strategies, but I think we all get this sense of like, there's, there's a lot of, I don't want to say pressure, but kind of push and go, okay, we'll just, we got to figure this out. There's a magic bullet out there that will solve this problem. Um, okay. So, yeah. So what, what do we, you know, or, or some, what we hear often is like, well, this is, this thing's working really good in Brazil or this, this is working really well in Korea. Right. Yeah. We, we, you know, we easily fall into this, the strategy fallacy. Yeah. That, right that it's just the right strategy or it's the right combination of things. And at the end of the day, it's the same thing that, that falling into uh, the right apologetics is going to get this person. It's the thought that it's a combination of things to unlock a box. So, yeah. So that was exactly my question. What, what next, how do you, how do you, how do you, how do you do it? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, ironically, you know, the hyper pragmatism is probably straight out of uh, secularism, but (laughs) that's, uh, Totally. Part of it, but I, you know, you don't want to sound trite or you know just kind of saying Christianese um, because you know we can all say oh build relationship, build trust, and you know that all, and that's of course fundamental. But that's like saying how do you bake a cake? We well, got to have flour, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, okay, let's go beyond that. <laughs> right, you know? um, wait, wait a second, wait a second. I'm gonna, I'm gonna write that down. It's, this is groundbreaking. Yeah, exactly. You know. <laughs> And that's how I felt going to postmodern conferences for about 10 years. Like, thanks. Yeah. People are, you know, real experiential. Yeah. Great. You know, what is <laughs> whatever. Um, but I think for us, the very first thing is really uh, a heart and an identity issue for us as workers, which is to say, this is really hard, not to the point of defeatism, like we're never going to see breakthrough, but to admit that we're really working in a radically different context. And I think if you don't start there emotionally and, and, and in reality, then you get disappointed when that one little tool doesn't turn the corner. 
that people are not, you know, and this could be said about, you know, radical, you know, not radical Islam, Islamic dominates society, Hindu dominates society. It is so different. We have to imagine ourselves as our heroes, as pioneers who went to that village in that, in that jungle, and they did not see it the same way. Yeah. And I think that's the starting point. Um, and then have high expectations that the gospel story is its own self-authenticating and self-proving. And so really, our emphasis is people really don't know what Jesus said and did. Mm. You know, the real ignorance of that. And, and you have to really, it's the whole narrative approach is being with people and restoring them by saying, these are the stories of Jesus. This is what he said and did. And this is how he's working in my life. And I'm going to pray he works in yours. I mean, it's kind of just an authentic, honest upfrontness. And yeah, you have to embed and build trust and, and you know, relationships to do that. But I think the expectation is it's a, it's a long work and commit to it. That's just step one. I don't know if you. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that we have found resources that were helpful. Like Sean mentioned, I, I once was lost. You know, we use that with our new team members to help them kind of be prepared for some of the stages that people go through. Um, you know, if they, if people come, if we meet people and they are spiritually hungry, you know, that's awesome, right? To, to get people right. to start at, at that place. But I think when, when there's a lot of barriers, um, culturally, spiritually, you know, worldview, all of these things, um, you know, you, you do have to allow people to get to know you um, for those barriers to start to come down. And I don't mean necessarily like developing a two-year friendship with someone before you present the gospel, but I, I, I think presenting the gospel in the context of, you know, our lives are here too, and, and we're willing to share our lives as we're presenting the gospel, um, however you want to, you know, however you want to describe that, we've just found that to be really important because of the misunderstandings about what Christianity really looks like. And um, like Sean said, the ignorance about if you've never met a follower of Jesus who's sincere and who's, you know, devout, then then you you don't know what to expect. And so, so I think, you know, when we're when we're sharing the gospel with people, um, you know, we kind of have to remind ourselves of that. This isn't necessarily it's not just the first time someone may have heard the entire story of the gospel, but it might be the first time they've had a personal encounter with someone who's trying to follow Jesus. And in yeah. all humility, you know, we're just on that journey. Like we're not yeah. people that know everything or, or get it all right. But I do think there's power in, in simply staying here and living here a long time. You know, Garrick's been here longer than we are. You stick around. Yeah, That's really important. And that goes back to that short-term missions issue, which would be a whole, I'm sure, whole other podcast, but yeah. What yeah. what's it going to take yeah, to do what, this? What, what we're sharing yeah. is weird. Yeah. We have to acknowledge, you know what I'm saying? Like, if you think about yeah. what we just said about these, about these secular, uh, different types of secularists, what we're sharing, the worldview we live by is weird. We, you know, we, we believe in the supernatural. We, we believe someone else has authority over our lives. Right. You know, we, we believe in moral purity. I mean, these are bizarre things to yeah. say that we believe. And so I think we we have to be transparent about sharing relationships in our lives with people. So, you know, other, otherwise, I just don't know that the words are going to make any sense. Well, you know, it's so it's it's interesting because 
I, I couldn't agree more with all of that. When I first arrived, interestingly enough, I first arrived in Sweden in 2008 as well. Um, and uh, so we've been in Europe, I guess, for about the same amount of time. Um, and I remember very early on, my wife and I went out on campus and we're talking to a, a group of students. Um, and I just remember one girl in particular, she's informed me since then that it's, it's, there were more people there, but I just remember this one response of this girl because we were the first Christians. She was 26 years old. We were the first Christians that she had ever met. And um, I remember her looking at me with these eyes of uh, disbelief. And I realized in that moment, oh, she thinks I believe the world is flat. Um, and it, 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 but it wasn't in the sense of uh, when, a, when an American audience hears someone say that we're ready to convince them otherwise, we want to engage with that. We have a kind of a combative idea culture where we're, we're ready to jump on that. Um, she wasn't like that at all. She looked at me with very Swedish eyes, which was, well, aren't you an interesting science experiment? Exactly. Um, and, and what was going on in the back of her head was, um, I always heard that there were people like this out in the world, but I never actually believed that I would get to meet them. And so I became this interesting thing that she could, you know, and and I don't, I don't begrudge her for the feeling that she had, but it was this very seminal moment for me when I realized, okay, we're, we're doing something different here than when, when I was in, uh, you know, North Africa and Central Asia, where the conversations were about the deity of Christ. (laughs) Like, so, Um, but in those moments, what, what's interesting. And since then, what I've really come to realize is that, because I would say the majority of people that we meet in Sweden, um, have her attitude in general, that that is the over our, over the driving attitude with this added into it. The many people, um, I realized it's funny about 10 years ago, up until about two and a half years ago, I could use this example and it wasn't an issue and everyone connected with it on an emotional level. Now, when I bring up the world is flat thing, some people are actually starting to believe that the world is flat. And so it's kind of taken my analogy away. Like it's, yeah, exactly. it's not working the way it used yeah. to. <laughs> but, but so, oh, no. it, it, so the, the, the moral force of this is, is really lacking at the moment. I got to find a new analogy, but, but anyway, the, the, point being is actually with the added caveat of in Sweden, people find the gospel offensive, not just so in general, people find Jesus um, beautiful. No, actually, they don't in Sweden. The majority secular culture attitude is that it's actually immoral. So because you're talking about shame and guilt and and death, and it's just kind of this ooh icky sort of feeling. And so we're we're dealing with that now. And that becomes yeah. the, the, the general overarching story that we have to undo. And to be honest, our first step these days is we just convince people we're normal. <laughs> like that's like, that's right. like our biggest right. apologetic, like, no, we, we right. actually engage in the world and we're not, you know, living somewhere out in the forest and, you know, these sort of things. Right. And, and um, that yeah. tends to and be, we, just, people we, we talk so much about that. Yeah. 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 Uh, so yeah, like you said, it's like, Someone who's like, uh, you know, from, I don't know, here in Granada is like, oh, I, I met an Amish person. Yeah, I've seen a movie once, you know, and it was very distinctive. And and so, yeah, it's so different. And, but that's why we, we talk, our, our first threshold is this whole distrust to trust, right? You got to move people. And it's not just trust of G, it's like trust of any person that would really be into religion, like seriously, you know, and, and that it, 
you, her meeting you, it's like, I have no category for this. I, and there's even like a little suspicion and anger. And that's also why it's so important that we do ministry and team because she can meet you. Okay. He's a decent guy, but he's like my exception rule. Right. 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 Like, you know, like, yeah, he's my one religious person, but I know him. He's okay. He's not like those other people. And that's why we talk about building trust is not just me with one-on-one. It's got to be our team, our community of faith yeah. to the community so that it says, wow, there's multiple people. So there's more to it than this. So the trust isn't just me building trust. It's trust about people of faith in general. Yeah. You know, pretty much most suspicious of all people of serious faith. And uh, that's such an important threshold. And again, yeah, we're normal. Like we eat the same, we go to the same schools they like the same movies. Um, it just so that there's a some sort of bridge. Otherwise, you are they're looking at us like we're a zoo animal. They're like mm-hmm. that's a mamba snake, and I'm a human <laughs> being, and like we're just never going. To, you know, we're just yeah. so radically different. Yeah, um, exactly right. They just can't put you. In, yeah, and so I think that's that's an important point. Hmm. So how do you guys keep hope alive in the middle of all of this? This has become an all-encompassing, important question for for us in Sweden, as we think about, you know, our teams and staff, and even as I, you know, in, within church, how do we keep hope alive in the middle of, um, so part of, mm, I'm going to back up. So that's my question. Now, let me give you a little bit of context to that question. We hear stories of the power of the gospel. I think American optimistic church growth theory bleeds into that and tells us a story that if the gospel's good, it'll produce a certain amount of fruit. And we tend to think that that amount of fruit is large basketfuls, okay? And when we start butting up against secular culture, I think the hardest thing for a missionary or a pastor, so you don't even have to be, you know, you can be Spanish living in Spain, but the reality is, is you're butting up against this culture and it ain't going the way that you thought it was going to go. How do you keep hope alive in the middle of that when the story that you maybe be swimming in as well, as far as your Christian culture tells you, oh, you should be seeing basketfuls of fruit. Like, how do you keep hope alive in that? Um, Yeah, I mean, I would say probably part of the answer is team. You know, Mm -hmm. I I think it's deadly to be by yourself. And um, so whatever that looks like in your local context, it may not even actually be people that work with you. But, um, you know, people that share your beliefs, getting together regularly, somehow, you know, being part of a, of a healthy church where you are not um, 100% responsible for your own hope. You know what I'm saying? That, that you're sitting under wise and, and pastoral people who are encouraging you and, and sharing the word of God with you. I think if we're responsible for our own hope, it's not going to work. You know, I don't, I don't think we're that strong. I, I, I think we have to go to other people and, and lean on each other, you know, to help us see the hope that is in Jesus, you know, that, that he, the gospel is powerful. Um, but to counteract, you know, all of the, all of the discouragement that we feel and, and the unanswered prayers and, and all of those things. And the second thing, I guess, I, I think that we have to probably, increase how much time we spend in the word in the bible Mm. because that story is not the american optimism everything always works out and everything always progresses in one direction i don't think that that's necessarily 
you know, when you really immerse yourself in the New Testament world, um, it's a more complex picture than that. Mm-hmm. And, and the more that you, you know what I'm saying? The more that you're studying and reading, yeah. you're counteracting what, what I think you're absolutely right. We have as Americans, particularly a cultural narrative that says, you know, you, you always have to have more fruit than you did five years ago. And there's a certain timeline we all have in our own minds. I've been here this long. This is what this is supposed to look like. Um, and so I well, think- And, and we, yeah. we, hear, we hear stories of, I'm sorry to cut you off, but we hear, oh, no. we hear stories of like pastors, right? Who'll get on these leadership podcasts or whatever. Maybe this shows you I'm spending way too much time on podcasts, but but they'll get on and like, how are you doing? Man, you know, God is just blessing the socks off of us. We've, we've had, and that's true. Look, you got growth. That's, that's awesome. I'm, I'm happy for you. But what about the pastor who gets up there and goes, man, God's blessing the socks off of me. He's making me look more like Jesus and right. he's humbled right. me. Right. Like we don't tell that story, right. but like that seems to be a lot more like Paul than anything. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Cause you know, Paul has all those long passages where he says, you know, I've learned to be content in, in abundance, but also when I'm like starving and discouraged and, yeah. you know, I felt this pressure that was all, you know, almost to the point of death and I got through it and that's so that I could have compassion and comfort you. There, there's such a richness there that, that I think is so much more realistic and, but it really, you, we really have to feed on that to counteract you know, these other narratives that, um, that can be very unrealistic. Yeah. Even on a practical level, like on our own team, you know, we start our staff meeting with celebrating wins, mm-hmm. but we measure those according to adequate measurements, you know, and, and, and that's, you know, Hey, we think we built trust. We think this person's become curious. We think this person is, is maybe asking the right question for the first time and, and celebrating those, because that's, those are the markers, actual markers of seeing secular people come to Christ. Um, you know, we, we did a kind of a walk through the acts a while back. And, and one of the things that kind of struck me along this issue is they celebrate when the gospel was preached. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of time, you know, we love the day of Pentecost. I mean, you're talking to two Pentecostal missionaries. So, you know, we, we were really into acts too, right? We, we got that one down. Thousands got saved. But the further you go in the book, the crowds get smaller and less receptive and, you know, you know it falls in a prison waiting. Yeah. Yeah. But we don't, but what they, what they take joy in is that the gospel was preached. And I think there's a vicious positive cycle and a vicious negative cycle circle, however your, your, your personal colloquialism on that one. But um, is, you know, when we, when we get nervous and it's not working, we stop spreading the good news of Jesus. Then of course we're going to have less fruit. But if we celebrate the preaching of the good news, and I mean that in its widest sense, this is who Jesus is, and this is what he said and did, then all of a sudden you have more to celebrate. I was able, and you could start, it's, it has effect. I mean, that's the seed that becomes the tree, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think it's that confidence in the gospel and allowing the, and measuring that as opportunities taken and uh, to celebrate that I had this, you know, I, I was able to, Paul says, you know, I was able to sit in front of Kings, you know, and someone didn't respond, didn't say yes. Yeah. But it, it's celebrating that. And I think that's freeing as workers to say, let's, uh, we had a great conversation and it didn't just talk generically about life. I really was able to say Jesus to this person. Yeah. And we celebrate that. And, awesome. and I think that's really just kind of making that part of our, our community's culture. 
um, that's that's just reality, and you get hope from that. Yeah. So it's interesting because you, uh, wow, you guys are so well grounded in the word, and even when you, I, I, it's your your point about being involved in a community. Um, I mean, that's Hebrews eleven and twelve, right? Like it's. It, don't give up because there's a whole host of people who've gone through what you're going through and they all attest to the fact that it's worth not giving up for, um, you know, it's worth persevering for. And so um, that's been something that we've, I, I keep coming back to recently of, um, well, you know, you, you guys are there in Spain and you've got the Camino de Santiago and Garrick and I have had the pleasure of walking it together. And recently in, in, um, in September, we walked it as a family. And my, my daughter, who's seven years old, was struggling one day. The day we walked 25 kilometers. And um, she looks down at the path. And we had watched this movie um, called I'll Push You, where this this uh, guy pushes his his friend who's in a wheelchair the entirety of the Camino de Santiago. And it's just an incredible story. And um, spoiler alert, all those people out there, they're coming on the podcast. So anyway not spoiler alert, a big announcement. What do we call that? I don't know. Anyway, uh, spoiler alert now. So make sure you turn it off. Uh, anywho. So she looks down at that path and she said, and she asked me, she says, daddy, did, did Jason and, and, uh, or did Justin and Patrick walk this path? And I said, yeah, they walked this very path. And she goes, okay, I think I can keep going. If that doesn't tell you what it means to make sure you're involved and to, and to take yourself out of the secular experiment, which says you got to figure it out on your own, right? That's one of the big lies of the enemy in this whole secular experiment is that, is that it, the enemy tells you, you got to figure it out on your own and you got to make your own salad bar. Don't trust everyone else. Right. That can't be trusted. Yeah. And yet the Bible says the exact opposite. Trust those who've gone before you, not because they had it all right, but because they remained faithful. Right. Um, and then right. that'll, that'll help you along the way. So I, yeah. I love, I love that. Well, the thing is, we, you know, most of us that are called to this kind of work, you know, we've read or heard the stories about this person who went to China in 1800, this person who went to India you know, and they didn't see one soul converted in their whole life. And then now we know there's 25,000 churches in that area. Like what we tell those stories, but none of us want to live those stories. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> you know, what I'm saying? You know um, and, and so I, I think it is like that, that we do have those stories of those who've gone before, you know, you can talk about the, what's happening in Iran with all the growth there right now. And, and man, we all remember what it was like when the, you know, even in the eighties, you know, 50, yeah. 50 years ago now, Shaw and all, all that kind of stuff and the prayer that went into it and the labors and in the martyrs, you know, and, 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 you know, we're not in that kind of a context, but at the same, in terms of danger, physical danger, but why should we have it any different to say, we're yeah. going to plug in, we're going to be faithful, we're going to celebrate the gospel. And yeah, I, I want to believe, you know, my for friend Javier and for right. breakthrough, like we're not, we don't want to get like, oh, don't expect God to do anything. That's the wrong right. attitude. But a sense of it, it shouldn't surprise us if we're in that kind of pioneering into a, a different worldview that it's going to take some time. One of our mm. leaders um, in our organization, he often says when it's like a big group of workers gathered together and you know people are, you know, in, in all kinds of different contexts. And he, also, he often says, remember, if you're in a season of harvest, it's because someone came before you and yeah. sowed the seed and broke up the hard ground. Maybe if you're breaking up the hard ground and you're sowing the seed, remember, you know, it may be you that enjoys the harvest. It may be somebody else, you know, yeah. but that's, that's very, very biblical to say, you know, we're, we're part of this process. And because God is faithful, we know ultimately harvest happens. 
but yeah. we don't necessarily get to choose, you know, where <laughs> we are in, in that process of breaking up ground or, you know, sowing or, or just cultivating this little baby plant that um, yeah. is going to end up multiplying. And we all want to be, you know, we, we all want to see that, that last stage. And, um, and sometimes we're a bit earlier in the process and that's okay. I think we, you know, you make your peace with that if you're going to stick around. Yeah. Yeah. yeah if you're yeah. going to stick <laughs> around, right. You know, there's, it, there's these, um, so in Sweden, Sweden is 73% forest and, um, you'll go driving down a road and you'll see land that's not forest. And um, that's, you know, used for agriculture or whatever. And you'll have these massive fields. And then all of a sudden in this middle, in the middle of this field, there'll be an island of trees. And you're kind of like, it, it took me a while to kind of realize uh, what that was. And that's where they took, because when you go through the forest, it's covered in moss and stones. And what happens is in order to reclaim good ground for growing things, they had to take all the rocks and they piled them up in the middle of the field. And so if you were to go out to that little island of trees, it's just a pile of rocks that over time trees have grown up in. But in order to make the fields ripe for growth and harvest, someone had to pick up rocks yeah. for ages. And then you can go into different parts of Sweden and you see these stone fences. It wasn't because the farmers there thought, we just need a lot of stone fences and I prefer stones. Like, no, they, they needed to literally eke out a living. And so the right. only thing they could think to do with those stones was to make fences with them. Like, it's like, this is the type of thing that you have to do. And uh, I, it seems to me that the the missionary endeavor, especially in places like Europe, but also, yeah, you made a great point, uh, Iran or, you know, formerly Central Asia and different places is that effort of, I think back to the, the, the parable of the soils. What is my responsibility today? Is it to pick up, is it to remove the ground of thorns? Is it to plow something? Is it to scatter seed? Is it to pick up stones? There are many of us who have been missionaries who all we will get to do is pick up stones. Yeah. We should we should not be we should not tell ourselves the lie that that was inconsequential, um, yeah. and we should not tell ourselves the lie that when the person who saw the harvest stands before Christ, that Christ will praise that person more. We don't know right. what He's going to do, but right. we know that we're all involved in the in in the process of bringing Him glory in that way. Well, ultimately, he's the Lord of the harvest. Right? Yeah, it's like some exactly. point, it's like, yeah, it's not like anybody did this. <laughs> yeah. You know, right. and I, I, that's such powerful. You know, we don't know. The Lord will see what we're doing. And I think, too, one of the things about this whole, whether you're a stone picker outer or whether you're the you know sickle sickle to the wheat thing. Yeah, I'm going to add is, that to my email signature, stone picker outer. Exactly. <laughs> yes, I'm an INTJ and a stone picker outer. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, we also over-realize the distinction of the work in both those seasons. Yeah. The work is still, we, and I, I, my wife doesn't like this, but I, I just say gospeling, right? It's still, I, you know, it's still, what yeah. did Jesus say and do? Like, it doesn't matter what season you're in. In fact, if you're growing gangbusters and you're not doing that, instead you're managing growth, then you're not actually doing the work anyway. And those people aren't disciples, they're, they're attendees. Yeah. And so I think we can also take some centering into what is our job. Yes, there's different tasks. I get that at different seasons. We understand that and there's fruitfulness, but the task is still 
And Paul seems to be so like, yeah, there's a revival here and there's also no response here. I'm pretty much doing the same thing. Yeah, right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I think no, that would help cool. us get also kind of stay focused and in, in, in in, on what is our task. And it's the presentation of Jesus and saying, he's who he is. Here's what he's like. And this is what it demands of us. That's it. Jesus is still so a big deal. Yeah. So don't, don't over, don't overcomplicate it. Uh, yeah. Keep the main thing, the main thing. Okay. So, so two questions here. Uh, so one is, yeah, I know a bit, well, then they're both related to this, but I know for you guys, a big passion is helping people help the church figure this out to have this aha moment that I think, you know, we've all had and some of our listeners have had of like, okay, this, this is a different game. This is not baseball. We've, we've been trying to play soccer with baseball equipment, basically, right. you know, and so we need to, we need to do some things. So I would, so one would be, um, so I know, I know that's a big, big passion of y'all's. You guys are, are doing it, working in that area to try to move people uh, to really reach secular Europeans. Um, and to avoid the, the kind of the pitfalls that can, you can get into of really wanting to share the gospel, but end up going, you know, to the left or to the right or, you know, but not hitting them that mark. Um, so what, what I would say, what, one, so for one question is what, what do you see as the state of the European body of Christ with respect to that? Are we, are we doing a good job or, or, or even the, the, the missionary, you know, uh, movement, are we, are we hitting that? Are we, are, are we needing to, to make some major corrections? And number two, I think you guys have, you guys have some things in the works. Don't you guys have like, like a journal or if you're able to talk about those things and some, some things coming up that might be really helpful for people out there who would be interested in, in getting more involved with this conversation. Yeah. I think Deb's going to hit the thing about how we're doing in Europe. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I can't, I can't speak. No, we can't speak for that, for how are we doing Europe. I, I, I think we've, we've seen over the last 10 years, the conversation has been moving in the right direction. And I think that um, the part that we felt called to play was just sort of to name the challenge that we were up against, you know, to be able to say there is a secular worldview and, um, it, you know, it does have a certain shape. And, you know, this is a, a unique challenge and, uh, and we're not the only ones out there obviously talking about that. But, but I, I feel like from a lot of different directions, we feel like in the past 10 years, um, the church in Europe and, and some of our American churches are starting to really grapple with it. And, and I, I don't know how long it takes then to change strategy and stuff like that. Um, but I would say, I cert we certainly come across more books than we used to yeah, where people right. are articulating the worldview and the challenge. And even as we've said, how it affects us as believers, all of those things seem to be just more in the air than they were 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, I think at the same time, one of the biggest challenges is, is the doubling down on the culture wars and, mm -hmm. and the culture war really distracts from reaching people and in fact can be opposed to reaching people. And so, so I think that's been kind of like from our perspective, a, a tension maybe as we see more awareness in the churches and more, more, you know, in a sense, more desire to reach people. But then if, if, 
If on the other hand, people are very caught up in, in a culture war and in politics and in on, you know, it's on a whole nother level, the, the voice of believers can get lost. You know, if, if we're using our voices for all of those other things, our, our testimony about Jesus gets lost in all of that. And so, so I think it's a kind of a delicate moment. I I feel Mm -hmm. like it's a moment that, you know, we, we, we pray desperately that the testimony about Jesus, you know, won't be lost for the next generation as, as a cost of, of the culture war. I'm I'm trying to figure out a a way to even you know how sometimes you need to rephrase uh, something that's in common parlance. I feel like culture war is one of those. Um, I'm toying around with calling it idol propping. <laughs> that we, we just our idols are falling, and so we want to just go around and keep them keep them up for a little while longer. Yeah. Like it. Yeah. Uh, splinting, and I'm I'm in plates. I, yeah, you're right. Something something there is is you you hit the nail on the head. Um, you mentioned you guys mentioned uh, you know the the literature is is definitely more rich than it than it used to be. I would I would totally agree with that. What are some books that y'all have read either recently or or in all of this that have books, journals, whatever that you're finding? Wow, this is if if there was an enterprising you know person who wanted to start reading in these areas, where are some places you would point them to? Well, you know, our, our, our grandfathers obviously are the big names, Leslie Newpigen, if you're, you know, if you're not, yep. haven't read him, then, you know, he's, he's the one where it kind of begins for, for us all. So everything he's ever written, you know, we, we obviously try to get people, and because he is readable, you know, that's the good news. He's yeah. um, <laughs> not recent though. That's not recent, yeah, but yeah. yeah, that's more like the roots, I think of the good stuff, of the that, good stuff. that was, and, and then I think more recent people build on that. Yeah, I mean, and obviously from understanding secularism, Charles Taylor is the the guy who helps understand it. Those are the big kind of behind the scenes guys, but on the popular level, and How I don't- not to be secular, the popular Yeah, James level. K. Smith, who, who, yeah. who does that. Um, uh, you know, there's a lot with that seculosity. Um, and again, a lot of these are from American context, but they're still kind of getting it. And, and the, honestly, the, the missional church movement, it, it, there's a lot there that, they're writing more about this, uh, Michael Frost, um, his stuff. You know, one, one that I found really interesting, which does come from the American context, but um, is, is uh, I think I have it here, Hidden Worldviews. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's not I've super recent, it. it's from like okay. 2009, um, but really very readable and very much goes over, um, of like, I don't know, maybe nine different things like individualism or nationalism or materialism, like these deep elements in the secular worldview um, and kind of shows, you know, the challenges and and even maybe some things in, in, in these elements that aren't all evil, you know, like individualism, mm-hmm. you know, it's not 100% evil because it's, you know, it's a, it's a Christian book, but I found that one really helpful, even though it's not super recent. Yeah. Um, those, yeah, those, that's a really good book. Um, you know, even the, from a missiological standpoint, Christopher Wright, um, you know, he, he's writing the mission of God's people, but his most recent book is, is really, I hate to say that out loud, but it's a challenge to American nationalism in, in, in this moment. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, here are your gods. Um, and so there's a lot of people even exposing it, the secularism in our own hearts. Right. And, and that's what's unique. 
in this right. moment. Um, and it's, and I think this moment is producing these works, to be honest, that's the other issue is, is that so those are the kind of things you know there really isn't the still yet the how i mean stephen pa, stephen Poss, you guys of course i think have had conversations about him in terms of europe um you know that's that's good stuff um but there still aren't the, also the, coming on the podcast awesome We're excited about that awesome. yeah yeah so you know those but there still isn't the you know like i, I remember back when we were assigned this secular people's initiative and we Googled like, you know, church planning on secular peoples and the Google thing only had like two O's in it. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> yeah, I, I, and then I did, I did church planning among, you know, Muslims amongst, in, in, you know, you had reams and reams of academic and popular. We're getting there. And that's the good news. Is we're getting there. Yeah. So, uh, so Garrick mentioned that y'all are something about a journal or something like that. What, I, I cut you off before you could answer that. Delve in, delve into that answer. Yeah. Well, out of our, our own particular uh, denominational stuff, we're kind of being given the task of, of really generating a, a, a passion for secular peoples as a, as a block, you know, like, Hey man, mm-hmm. Um, this is a field that needs to be on the missiological map. I was just doing some stats the other day. And according to our definition, as best as we can tell, you know, we're talking 1.5 billion people. Yeah. You know, so kind of just sort of creating some of the, taking some of the data out there, but putting our labels on it. And what, the first thing we're doing is kind of just a popular aimed at young people kind of lose yourself devotional journal where we'll pray, hmm. it'll challenge the secularism in us, but then you begin to pray for secular people's um, around the world from the mark passage from the mark 835 you lose yourself for my sake in the gospel yeah yeah so that so we're kind of working on the really the devotional and um, we have you know courses and things that we do and trainings and stuff and hopefully we have a secularpeoples.org uh, under construction site who knows when that gets gets done but we'll start doing those things but really we're trying to really raise a generation who can face this in their own hearts you know, it, again, if we don't get Egypt out of us, we'll never be effective at right. engaging people in Egypt, you know, and right. so that's really, a, so it's going to be lose yourself campaign is basically a lose yourself in Europe, lose yourself among secular peoples. And uh, so we're going to be producing some of those things. Hopefully that 2021, we have all our deadlines. So it's um, oh, awesome. the time to write. Wow. Well, I would love to see some of that when I'll make sure yeah, I'm following, following that on the websites and stuff. Cause I think that's hugely important. Um, my brother's wife's stepdad, I guess, uh, is a, is a st- statistician at, uh, a university in America. I probably shouldn't get narrow it down too much. He may not want me to point him out on this podcast, <laughs> but he's, he's fond of saying, um, there's lies, damned lies, and then there's statistics. Right. And, um, and, and, you know, I think in missions is very guilty of throwing out those statistics, especially I, at least as a missionary in Europe, I feel often, and I've been a missionary in, in the 1040 window. Right. Um, but you know, the one that, you know, however much percentage of every dollar that goes towards the 1040 window. And it's like, yeah, because I could live off of a hundred dollars a month there. Exactly. Like, yeah. like, <laughs> I, I paid, I paid 50% in taxes, you know, like, I mean, exactly. it's just, you know, it's like, well, okay. That doesn't really tell the whole story, right. but yet right. it, it, it gets things going. And, and that's one of those things that I, I'm all for reaching unreached people groups. I just think we've defined it 
this is yeah. personal opinion. We've defined it in such a means that that was a, a snapshot in time, but then right. we forgot to kind of update and, and go, yeah. well, wait a second. Maybe people who quote unquote have the gospel actually haven't heard too. Right. Because um, it's amazing how many more people were familiar with the stories of Jesus in, in Central Asia than are familiar right. with the stories of Jesus here. Yeah. So and, we always technically yeah. they're reached. So yeah, it, it, we always talk about that. We one of the big things we talked about is we did the world value survey. Yeah. Who believes in a personal God, judgment, hell, and sin? And you show Turkey on the map and it's like 95%. And then you go to Europe and no one's larger than 25%. I'm like, well, yeah. you know, it, it, it's a different starting place. And as one of my colleagues who's been in both worlds says, it's a different kind of heart. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah, not, it totally hard, is. it's not hard to have a spiritual conversation in an Islamic context. It's right. hard to convince people Jesus is the Lord. Right. Here, the conversation is the challenge, you know, and it's different. So, yeah, the statistical issue is important. I, I think we just want to say it's, if, you know, and Luke, Leslie Newbigin said, he said, he says, there's only two competing, three competing views really in the 21st century, Islam, biblical Christianity, and what he called basically secularism. Yeah, yeah. And so I think it's compelling from that standpoint. We just need to get that message out, but not to produce a culture war, but to right. produce apostolic function, yeah. you know? Right, right, that exactly right. Don't get sideways about winning a battle that we're not supposed to be fighting in the first place. Yeah, but that's hard. Because yeah. we we carry so much of our culture into stuff, you know, exactly. and so may God have may God have mercy on our souls as we endeavor to follow Him, you know. But oh man, you guys are doing incredible work, really yeah. encouraging stuff. Thanks. Thank this you is much. well. This has been. Sorry, what did you say, Deb? Sorry. No, I was just saying we we appreciate just getting to chat with you guys. Yeah, thanks. This was I, I, knowing some of the people who listen. I think this is this is going to be. It, probably one of our better podcasts spirit wouldn't you say i i because of yeah the, i believe the content so, yeah. of things some there's a few things that you i feel in this in this conversation where, where we able to like two or three pegs that i think are just really kind of important for people to hear um right. yeah. thanks so much guys Thank and guys. okay so as, as we as we finish up in honor of st louis yes. so 25 25 years ago this week Sunvolt. So if you, I don't, if you don't know who Sunvolt is, they're one of the early alt country bands that kind of uh, came out of the they, Uncle Tupelo. Uh, they 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 blew up and formed two bands, Wilco and Sunvolt. And Sunvolt released their probably some some people say considered one of the best country rock albums ever. Trace was 25 years ago this week. So good that Wilco, the guys the guys who actually broke up with the guys in Sunvolt to form two bands. They had an album come out at almost the exact same time. They were in their tour bus. They put the, the, the Sunvolt CD in, listened to the whole thing. No one said a word. They ejected it and threw it out the window because <laughs> it was so good. They were like, they were so mad. But anyway, Wilco's a great band also. It forced them to make great albums. So St. Louis, great, a great music city, great soccer city. And uh, thanks, guys. Thanks a lot. Thank you guys so much for your time. It's been awesome.